Hear the word of the Lord from Luke 1. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And when he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive of your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end." And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth, this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it, let it be to me according to your word. 
And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. Peace be with you. If I haven't met you, my name is Adam. I'm one of the elders here, and it's an honor and privilege to preach from God's word this morning. As Dodd said, today we begin the season of Advent. So for the next five weeks, we'll be looking at the first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke. Now, as we remember and meditate upon the birth of Jesus during this season, we'll begin today by looking at how God was at work even in the months before Jesus was born. So even in this introduction, I believe Luke is inviting his readers to trust the long-awaited prophet, king, and priest who is coming. Have you ever experienced something that brought you disgrace and shame amongst people. See, the Bible often calls this reproach. And in the Bible, we see a variety of different reasons why someone might experience reproach. Whatever the situation, it often involves being taunted, humiliated, scorned, wrongly judged, often by people who are close to you. It could be from being abused or abandoned. It could be from a physical disability, perhaps it's from personal sin coming into the light and being revealed. In our passage this morning, it's from barrenness and infertility. Now, regardless of what the cause of reproach might be, I think the emotions that it brings are similar. It brings feelings of shame, humiliation, feelings of disgrace and embarrassment, brings grief and sorrow, weariness and hopelessness. Sometimes it can make you feel forgotten and outcast, broken, and maybe even rejected and forsaken by God. So have you experienced reproach? And if so, how has that potentially affected your ability to trust God? See, as Luke begins this gospel account, he starts, again, before Jesus was born, and he introduces us to a couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, who have been experiencing reproach due to their barrenness. Now, for today's sermon, we'll look at two main points. First, we'll look at two angelic announcements, and then we'll look at three promises fulfilled. So first, let's look at these two angelic announcements. So Luke begins with two parallel accounts of an angel Gabriel sent to bring an important message to two unsuspecting people. See, Gabriel appears unexpectedly first to Zechariah and then, months later, to Mary. Now, each of these accounts follows basically the same framework, which is typical of an Old Testament birth announcement. First, the person is troubled Then, they're promised a miraculous son with a significant calling. Then they ask a seemingly innocent question. And finally, they receive additional reassurance. Now, because Luke structures these passages similarly, similarly, the differences between them really stand out. So on the surface, it appears Zechariah and Mary have similar questions. But if we look closer, I think we'll see that that's not actually the case. See, this passage calls our attention to the contrast between Zechariah's doubt and Mary's trust. So let's look first at how Zechariah responds with unbelief 
and then at how Mary responds with faith. Look with me at verses 5 through 7. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. See, we learned Zechariah was a priest, and he was married to Elizabeth, who was also from a priestly lineage. And it says that they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now, this does not mean that they were perfect, but what it does mean is that they were faithfully walking with the Lord, that they were an example worthy of imitating. And it is particularly noteworthy because at this time, sadly, many of the priests were, were not trustworthy. They were unfaithful, even corrupt. And we also see, it says that they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. Now, this was confusing and difficult because according to Jewish thought, walking righteously and blamelessly before God would lead to blessing. And additionally, it says that they were advanced in years. So for those of you who are familiar with the Bible, does this remind you of another famous passage? See, Genesis 11 tells us that Sarah was barren, and Genesis 18 says that both Abraham and Sarah were advanced in years. So the exact same language is used by Luke to draw our attention back to another story of a miraculous birth, the birth of Isaac to Abraham and Sarah. So Abraham and Sarah were quite old, 190, we see back in Genesis, but how old were Zechariah and Elizabeth? Well, it doesn't explicitly tell us, but I think it's helpful when we consider Numbers chapter 8, which calls priests to actively be in service from the age of 25 to 50. And so in all likelihood, Zechariah was almost 50, and Elizabeth was similar in age. So while they're not as old as Abraham and Sarah, to them, it probably seemed impossible. It probably seemed impossible for them to have a child. And so we should, we should think about this from Zechariah's perspective. He's, he's very familiar with this story. God has fulfilled this impossible promise to Abraham and Sarah, who were much older than him. So why does Zechariah doubt? Let's look at verses 8 through 11. It says, Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Now, the most desired of all priestly duties was to burn incense. It was at this point where a normal priest like Zechariah would be the closest he would ever be to the Holy of Holies. And priests could only do this at most once in their entire life. And since he was likely nearing the age of 50, this was potentially his last opportunity and so finally, after years of service, the lot fell on Zechariah. This was the culmination of his life as a priest, the moment he had been hoping for. Now, tradition was for the priest to offer up a prayer to the Lord while burning incense. 
See, the incense created smoke that rose up to heaven, and it was a picture of prayers going up to God. And the expectation had come amongst the priesthood that whenever you had that one opportunity, that God would hear and answer your prayer. And so Zechariah, his prayer is immediately answered as an angel, Gabriel, appears and says, your prayer has been heard. But yet in verse 18, he says, how shall I know this? See, God had just granted Zechariah a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to pray near the Holy of Holies, then sent an angel to immediately assure Zechariah that his prayer had been answered. So why did Zechariah doubt? Look at verse 20. It says, And behold, this is Gabriel speaking, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. So Gabriel is brutally honest in his assessment of Zechariah and how he responds here. And it may even appear that I'm potentially being a bit harsh on Zechariah, but I do think, in some ways, I can relate to Zechariah. And it's not because I've been visited by an angel, in case you guys are wondering. Um, it is, though, it is, though, because Jennifer and I also have struggled with infertility. And so I can think back on that experience. I can think back on seven years of longing for a child. And then I can think of Zechariah and Elizabeth, who had 30-plus years. I can think of us being in our mid-30s, and I can think of them approaching 50. And so, while we certainly never received a direct promise from God, we did. I can remember the first time when we, we found out we were pregnant and how it just seemed impossible, honestly. Um, and so, I can imagine the shock and the struggle that Zechariah is experiencing. Um, your personal situation may be totally different, but I imagine that there's something that you've prayed for and prayed for and started to wonder, is God hearing my prayer? <clears throat> see, we should not be too quick to judge Zechariah. I think instead, we should see ourselves in Zechariah. So we've seen how Zechariah responds with doubt. Now let's look at how Mary, on the other hand, responds with faith. So we, we zoom ahead six months, and we see that Gabriel makes another surprise visit, this time to Mary. As we carefully compare the two passages, it highlights actually how Mary responded with faith. So first of all, for Mary, this was not an answer to prayer, but instead an unexpected announcement. Look, look with me at verse 26 to 28. It says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And we see the angel appears to Mary not in the temple while she's performing a religious duty, but while she is minding her own business in the lowly village of Nazareth. And while Zechariah has been praying for a child, Mary, on the other hand, finds favor apart from asking for anything. We also see that the son that's promised to Mary was even more startling. Look at verses 31 to 33. It says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. 
He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. See, while John, it says back in verse 14, was to be great before the Lord, Jesus was promised to be even greater. Now, the name Jesus actually means Jehovah, God, is salvation, but it was a common name. And so the name in and of itself, I don't think would have instantly meant anything particularly special to Mary. However, the additional promises were truly incredible. Verse 32 says, He will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. See, Gabriel references 2 Samuel chapter 7, a classic messianic promise that Mary had surely heard many times in the synagogue. And as she processes and considers this incredible news, she realized that she was being told she would be the mother of the Messiah, the Son of God. So we see then Mary responds with what I think is a clarifying question that comes from deep pondering. Now, if you jump back to verse 29, there it says, but she, Mary, was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. So this is immediately after the angel's initial greeting. She's yet to receive this promise. And Mary was already thinking carefully. The phrase used here is translated, tried to discern. And that could also be considered, basically translated as kept on pondering. So she's thinking carefully about this. She's wondering, what could it mean that an angel has appeared to me? What could it mean that I've been greeted as oh favored one? What could it mean that the Lord is with me? See, after, Gab- after she then heard Gabriel's incredible promises, I'm sure she had a lot more to ponder. She's certainly thinking, am I a poor, humble young girl from the lowly village of Nazareth really going to give birth to the Messiah? So after some deep contemplation, she responds with a question. You see this question in verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Now notice the subtle difference between her question and Zechariah's. See, Zechariah asked, how shall I know this? But Mary said, how will this be? I believe Zechariah had effectively been asking God for a sign. And interestingly, God graciously gives Zechariah a sign, although it comes with a significant consequence for doubt. So Gabriel is mute and deaf until John is born. And so ironically, the sign that Zechariah gets is that he will have to communicate by signing for the next nine months. On the other hand, Mary seems to be asking practically, how will this happen? In verse 27, we see, we're told that Mary was a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. Now in Jewish culture, betrothal technically established a couple as husband and wife. And then within about one year, the marriage ceremony would take place. And at that point, the marriage would be consummated. Now, a woman could actually become betrothed as early as age 12. And many scholars believe that Mary was not much older than that at this time. So one option is more straightforward. Mary will become pregnant immediately after 
her and Joseph are married or soon thereafter, right? But as she carefully considered what this might mean, there was another option. As she contemplated giving birth to the Messiah, she may have considered Isaiah chapter 7. Now in this passage, we see a man named Ahaz, and in verse 12, he says this. He says, I will not put the Lord to the test by asking for a sign. And then a couple verses later in verse 14, we see God responds. He responds with what's a well-known Advent verse. It may show up on one of your Christmas cards in the mail here in the next couple weeks, and that's this. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. So Mary may have thought, could it be that I am the virgin that is to conceive? See, whereas Zechariah had effectively just put the Lord to the test by asking a question, seeking a sign, Mary seems to have resisted asking for a sign and instead asked a question that required deep faith. Are you saying this will happen before I married Joseph? Will I be the virgin that conceives and bears a son? In other words, how will this be since I am a virgin? Now the angel responds with confirmation and further reassurance. Look at verses 35 to 37. It says, And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. So the angel effectively answers, yes, you will be the virgin who conceives. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So like Ahaz, Mary then receives an unprompted sign She's told that her relative Elizabeth has miraculously conceived and is in the sixth month of her pregnancy. She had been barren. See, nothing is impossible with God. Not a barren pregnancy, not even a virgin birth. So in summary, I think Mary's faith is truly remarkable. She's a young girl, likely around the age of 13. Upon hearing she'll give birth to the Son of the Most High, she has enough faith to ask if it will be a virgin birth. And this is a promise that will actually deeply complicate her life. See, at this point, Mary's betrothal is in jeopardy. She's going to have to go back to Joseph and tell her that she's pregnant. And while we learn in Matthew chapter 1 that Joseph actually did plan to divorce Mary quietly until an angel appeared to him in a dream and, and encouraged him to go through with the marriage. But even this best case scenario for Mary was daunting. See, some would assume that she was an adulteress who had born an illegitimate child that was conceived before marriage. So while we see back in verse 25 that God had taken away the reproach of Elizabeth by opening her womb, I think here in a sense, Mary is actually taking on reproach as she has this pregnancy. And yet, she responds by saying, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. So while some traditions, I think, are prone to overly exalt Mary, many others, I think, are guilty of overlooking 
or diminishing her. See, Mary's faith is exemplary. It's worthy of being held up as a model for all of us who follow Jesus. So to simplify, Mary is being asked to trust God with something that certainly brought anticipation and hope and excitement, but also that brought the potential of pain and difficulty. Now, as I reflect back further on our personal infertility struggles, I think in a small way, we can also relate to Mary. See, unfortunately, the first two times we became pregnant, we suffered miscarriages. It was deeply painful and heartbreaking. And as we were confused about God's plan for us, as we contemplated whether we should continue with fertility treatments or not, there was honestly a real fear of intentionally stepping into something that for us had been so painful. But God gave us peace. He gave us peace to move forward, trusting that even if it led to further pain, he would comfort us, he would sustain us, he had proven himself in that. However, in full transparency, it took months of God patiently walking with us through our doubts, through our fears. And through that, God showed us in a sense that we had, we had made comfort an idol. We had designed our life to try to navigate away from something that could be painful. And he was inviting us to trust him, to step into something that could bring more pain. Now, I think it's appropriate to ask for all of us, are our questions rooted in doubt or are they rooted in faith? See, whether you're a Christian or whether you're not, the posture of your heart when you're asking questions is important. And I think the examples we've just considered shed light on our own doubting hearts. When we're in a discouraging situation like Zechariah, are we asking, how shall I know this, with a doubting heart? If our faith is tested and we're called to something daunting and difficult like Mary, when we contemplate whether God can be trusted, do we respond with a faithful heart? Well, having considered these two angelic announcements, let's turn our focus to three promises fulfilled. See, Luke wants us to see that the promised and long-awaited prophet, king, and priest is coming. So first, we'll look at how Luke shows before Jesus is even born that he fulfills each of these three much-anticipated offices. And then we'll consider what Jesus as prophet, king, and priest means for us, particularly as it relates to faith and to doubt. So first, we see that the long-awaited prophet who was promised is coming. Look back at verses 16 and 17. We see the angel tell Zechariah, and he, John, will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now this promise refers back to the last two verses of the entire Old Testament in Malachi chapter four, where Luke highlights that John is the promised prophet that Malachi was speaking of, that he's finally coming. And interestingly, John's birth will bring an end both to Zechariah's silence and also to nearly 400 years of silence of the prophets since the days of Malachi. But while John is the prophet Malachi spoke of, he's not the ultimate prophet. See, that, the prophet that was promised um, that John would make ready for the Lord a people prepared. 
So John prepares the way, but Jesus is the way. See, the promise from back in the days of Moses, from Deuteronomy 18, which says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. This prophet is Jesus himself. So even before Jesus is born, Luke wants us to see that the promised and long-awaited prophet is coming. Second, we see that the long-awaited king who was promised is coming. So interestingly, of about 20 uh, documents of angels appearing in the New Testament, we see this chapter is the only one that includes the name of the angel. We also see the angel Gabriel only appears one other time in Scripture, and that's when he makes, again, back-to-back visits to Daniel. And so when he appears to Daniel, he promises first in Daniel chapter 8 that the prince of princes will break the reign of wicked kings. And then in chapter 9, he speaks to the future coming of an anointed one, a prince who would bring an everlasting righteousness. So in Luke chapter 1, we see Gabriel has returned indicating that the time for this anointed one, this prince of princes, has arrived. And Gabriel then tells Mary that her promised son Jesus would fulfill the promise in 2 Samuel 7, that he'd been given the throne of his father David and given reign over his kingdom forever. So by highlighting the return of of Gabriel and the specific message he gave to Mary, Luke shows us, again, before Jesus is even born, that the promised and long-awaited king is coming. Now third, we see that the long-awaited priest who was promised is coming. So Greek and Roman writers at the time used a principle called an inclusio, which Luke adopts in his gospel, I think. So what this did is it involved starting and ending a story with a very similar event. And the point of that was to highlight the main point of the story. So the story starts with A and it ends with Z, And everything in the story tells how we got from A to Z. So Luke, point A for Luke is that he begins, as we see in our passage this morning, in the temple with a seemingly righteous priest, unable to fulfill his role of blessing the people because he doubted when an angel unexpectedly appeared. Now after the incense was offered, if you recall, the people were waiting outside so the people would wait to come out and the priest was to pronounce a blessing over them. But Zechariah could not do that because he was mute. He's unable to bless the people. So what is Z for Luke? Well, at the very end of Luke, in chapter 24, we see Luke ends by showing the resurrected Jesus unexpectedly appearing to his disciples, who, like Zechariah, are filled with doubt. If you would look with me at the last three verses of Luke's gospel, This is after Jesus has given the disciples signs and reassured them. You can find it on page 1052, if you'd like to look there. So Luke 24, verse 50. It says, Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. So here we see Jesus, who is not a priest by physical lineage, is effectively claiming the priesthood. He's doing what only priests did, that is, lifting up his hands and blessing the people. Continue in verse 51. It says, while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. What a remarkable scene that must have been. 
Even as Jesus is pronouncing a blessing over the disciples, he ascends into heaven to take his seat as our great high priest at the right hand of God. Verse 52 finishes by saying, And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. See, God's people end up back in the temple, not waiting for a blessing, but responding to the blessing of Jesus, the faithful priest. So Luke wants us to see that God had carefully orchestrated events from months before Jesus' birth until his ascension to show that the promised and long-awaited priest is coming. And so, Jesus is the long-awaited priest, king, and prophet. But what does that actually mean for us? It might be interesting to you. It might not be interesting at all. But the question is, what does it mean? So, I think we're called, and Luke is inviting us, to trust Christ, specifically as prophet, as king, and as priest. So how do we trust Christ as prophet? Well, as our prophet, Jesus has spoken to us all that God has commanded him. Remember Deuteronomy 18.15, it is to him, it is to Jesus, we should listen. So how can we listen to Jesus? Well, I think there's three ways I want to highlight. First, we can devote ourselves to reading and studying the scriptures. See, all of the scriptures point to Jesus, and Jesus, who is himself the word, speaks to us through all the scriptures. And so one thing that will strengthen our faith and that will guard us against doubt is to dig into and study the scriptures, to understand that this is the very word of God for us and that it's worthy of our trust. But... Listening to Jesus involves more than just hearing or reading his word. See, after Jesus tells the parable of the sower in Luke chapter 8, he says this, he says, take care how you hear. See, he's calling his followers to be the good soil, who hearing the word hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. So listening to Jesus involves not just hearing or reading the scriptures, but holding fast, believing trusting, obeying, bearing fruit. And thirdly, we need to listen to the Holy Spirit whom Jesus sent to dwell in us. So shortly after Jesus ascended to heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit down, and the Holy Spirit indwells in all of us who follow Christ. So the Spirit will guide us, he will convict us, and sometimes he will call us to something good but difficult. Is the Spirit calling you to help someone in particular that is in real need. Maybe he's calling you to share the gospel with a particular person. Or maybe he's calling you to foster or adopt a child. So I think the question for us is, are we creating time and space to hear from Jesus? And when we do, are we responding with faith and obedience like Mary? So that's trusting Christ as prophet. What does it look like for us to trust Christ as king? Well, as our king, Jesus is in control. He reigns. His rules are for our good, and he will keep his promises. Now, at this point, we're all too familiar with campaign promises, right? Campaign promises are things we ignore because we know they're not going to be kept. But that is not the case with Jesus. He's a good and trustworthy king, and he will keep all of his promises. However, I think sometimes we find ourselves confused about what Jesus 
has actually promised. And unfortunately, confusion around the promises of Jesus can lead to what I think really amounts to almost a false campaign promise that Christians can make on Jesus' behalf. For example, on my drive up to see family in Thanksgiving the past few days, we came across a big billboard, and it said this, Jesus is the answer to all your problems. So who wouldn't want that Jesus? That sounds pretty great, right? Um, Now, there may be a nugget of truth in that, but I think it gives people the impression that Jesus has promised to solve all of our problems and to improve our life circumstances. So Jesus has not necessarily promised that longed-for spouse or child. He's not promised restored health for you or a loved one. He's not promised a repair of that broken relationship. He's not promised that you'll never fall back into those enslaving sin patterns. He's not promised that you'll be the one who avoids the layoff when your company's downsizing. See, in reality, Jesus has called us to take up our cross daily, and he even cautions us to count the cost before we follow him. So if anything, Jesus has promised us suffering. He has not promised that he's the one who will fix all of our problems. Now, if we're confused about the promises of Jesus, sadly, this can bring doubt into the life of the Christian. If you think Jesus made a promise and he's not fulfilling it, then you're going to question his character. You're going to question whether he is worthy of trust. So it's critical that we know what Jesus has promised and that we know what he's not promised. I think we also need to test words from the Spirit. So I I talked about how we need to to listen to the Holy Spirit who can convict us and guide us, can give us direction. But if you believe you've received a promise from God that was a promise of blessing, I would just ask you to be cautious. How are you 100% sure that that was a word from God? Have you compared it against the scriptures? Have you seen that promise in the scriptures? Because our hearts are deceitful and wicked. And if the promise that you think you've been given aligns with what your heart wants, you may very well be convincing yourself that God has promised something that you desire. I think that's why it's so important that we can have open and honest discussions in our neighborhood parishes where together we can remind one, of our, one another of the promises of God and seek to discern what God's promises really are and how they land on the ground in unique situations that we each have. So even when we believe in Jesus, when we entrust our lives to him, and when we properly understand Jesus' promises, I think it's important to note that we will still have times where we doubt certain things about Jesus' kingship. When our life circumstances are difficult, when we're experiencing reproach, we can be prone to doubt. Is God really in control? If he is, is he good? Does he care for me? Is he hearing my prayer? I think we would do well to consider what Joni Erickson Tata said. She uh, was paralyzed from a diving accident at the age of 17, and she says this. She said, he, God, has chosen not to heal me, but to hold me. 
the more intense the pain, the closer is embrace. So sometimes you may be enduring reproach because God is shaping you through it and preparing you for something remarkable. So, as a reminder, we must remember that Jesus is in control. He will always keep his promises, and even if he doesn't meet our desires, he's good. He's worthy of our trust. So lastly, how do we trust Christ as priest? Well, when we, like Zechariah, fail to trust God's plans or promises, Jesus, as our faithful priest, will advocate for us. He'll comfort us. He'll cleanse us. He'll restore us. Yes, Zechariah doubted. He experienced God's discipline as a result. But this discipline was in love. See, God graciously gave him the sign that he needed and strengthened his faith through the process. So even if we at times struggle with doubt, or maybe I should say even when we at times struggle with doubt, Jesus will be patient with us. He'll reassure us of his goodness and loving care. See, thankfully, we're not accepted by God based on the strength of our faith. We're we're accepted by God based on the object of our faith, the person in whom we put our faith. See, praise God that we, who trust in Christ, stand righteous before God even when we're struggling with doubt because our high priest Jesus has himself been the sacrifice to pay the penalty for our sin. He's cleansed us from all unrighteousness. He's not finished with us. He'll continue to strengthen our faith as we abide in him. See, on the cross, Jesus ultimately took on our reproach. For some of us, God may take away our reproach by answering our prayers and changing our circumstances. But even if he does not, for all, for all who trust in Christ, because Jesus bore our shame on the cross, we get to spend eternity with him. Please pray with me. God, we thank you that in Christ, you have fulfilled all of your promises. Help us to listen to the word and your spirit amidst all the voices competing for our attention. We thank you that even when our circumstances are painful and confusing, we can trust that Jesus is still reigning and loves us. And we thank you that when we doubt, when we struggle to believe or to trust you, to trust you that Jesus is our advocate, we we are thankful for that. We're thankful that he empathizes with us, that he comforts us, that he restores us. So in these coming weeks, please help us to meditate upon the miraculous conception and birth of your son, our Messiah. And as we do, Lord, strengthen our faith. Prepare us for whatever you're calling us to. And enable us by your spirit to trust you, regardless of what you have in store for us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.